Greetings to each of you. As I come before you, I stand even at this moment wondering whose antics I will imitate from this pulpit. Oftentimes when I sit out where you are sitting now and look up, I try to determine whose style I want. But I'm aware that there's a danger in imitation, many pitfalls, as I'm reminded of a little story that I wish to share with you now before I begin my sermon. It's a story of a man who I'm told was in New York. This is what they say. And he was seen jumping on a manhole, up and down, up and down, up and down. And he was counting 44, 44, 44, 44. Pretty soon, people began to gather around, and he just continued, 44, 44, 44. It wasn't long before somebody in the crowd said, I can do that. I can do that, and I can do it better than you. And the man said, well, if you want, come on. The man was trying to draw some attention to himself. So he took the place of the other man over the manhole and began to jump up and down and count 44, 44, 44. He had his crowd. People were watching. But one time when he was suspended up in the air, the first man reached over, grabbed the top of the manhole, and pulled it back. And the man fell straight down. And when that happened, the first man took the manhole, put it back over the cover, took the man cover, put it back over the hole, and began to jump up and down again, going 45, 45, 45, 45. I got through that. There are pitfalls in imitation. So I'm mindful of that. And I wish to express just a word of greetings also to the 1978 Duke University football team. I see many of the young men out in the congregation, and I welcome you especially. The topic of my sermon this morning has to do with the subject of righteous anger. Righteous anger. I have come to my topic by way of meditating on a portion of the 21st chapter of St. Matthew. And that portion beginning with the 12th verse and ending with the 16th verse. You heard this familiar passage read this morning as the scripture lesson. I wish now to reread it for the purpose of drawing your attention to its meaning. And if you have a Bible, if you have one with you, I would like for you to read silently along with me. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves or pigeons, depending on your translation. 
and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. Now, this passage holds for me memories of my boyhood. For some reason, I was always fascinated by the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. I cannot remember the first time that I heard it. But I can recall that each time I occasioned to hear it from my mother, my father, my grandmother, the minister at our local church, my Sunday school teacher. Each time I was as enraptured as the preceding time. The very vivid, very vivid image of Jesus overturning tables, knocking over chairs, and running people out into the street, no doubt intrigued me. As a matter of fact, I can recall that the effect on me was so great and so lasting that I would sometimes, it's funny how I can remember this so clearly, I would sometimes, even before I knew how to read well, go to the family Bible or the greenback Bible storybook we had in our house and hunt for the picture of Jesus cleansing the temple. You know how they have in some editions of the Bible paintings and drawings illustrating different biblical stories. Well, the illustration of Jesus cleansing the temple along with that of Joshua fit in the battle of Jericho, I remember that one very well, was my favorite. As I think back on what fascinated me, as I think back on what intrigued me about the story, I suppose it was the image of Jesus and the feeling of Jesus moving with such evident force and forthrightness. It was even more, I suppose, the image and the feeling and the thought of an angry Jesus. And I suppose what intrigued me the most about the thought of an angry Jesus was the contrast it presented to the image of Jesus which was most dominant in my mind. This was the image of a meek, mild Jesus, a Jesus so tender of heart and so loving as to be almost passive. 
although it was not intelligible to me then. I realize now that this contrast was for me, even at a young age, the focal point of my attempt to reconcile an all-loving Jesus with a Jesus of righteousness. And inasmuch as Jesus is the Son of God, suppose an all-loving God with a righteous God, yea, even a wrathful God. Some years after the passing of my childhood, I learned that I had not and was not alone in my attempt to reconcile a loving God with a righteous, wrathful God, a loving Jesus with a righteous, wrathful Jesus. I learned, for example, that though religionists have long agreed that love is indispensable to the Christian view of God's nature, for God is love, there has been much, much disagreement on how God's righteousness expressed in the form of God's wrath is reconciled with God's love. The issue, as I understand it, is in no way new. Years and years ago, during the early days of the church, the theologian Martian, for example, was among the first to face the problem head on. According to him, reconciling the Old Testament idea of the righteousness of God with the New Testament idea of the love of God is impossible. The concept of law as he saw it is a complete denial of love. His solution thereby was to insist that the gospel of Christ is completely new and thus has nothing to do with the concept of righteousness as presented in the Old Testament. As a result, Marcion posited the reality of two gods, the creator God of the Old Testament, who required obedience to the law of righteousness, and the redeemer God of the New Testament, who is the good, benevolent, self-giving God, the God of love. As might be expected, the church rejected Marcion's view. Since the early Christian community did not understand its existence as being completely new in the sense of negating the God of the Old Testament, they believed that they were the authentic continuation of the old Israel and not its denial. Christ, therefore, did not destroy the Old Testament. He fulfilled it. But while the early church rejected Marcion's division and dichotomy between the Old Testament view of God's righteousness and the New Testament view of God's love in Jesus Christ, many questions and much confusion about the precise relationship between the two aspects, the two modalities, dimensions, call them what you will, of God's reality have persisted even until the present day. In the main, 
we Christians have a tendency to regard God's love as the dominant motif of Christianity, while attempting to comprehend God's righteousness in the light of it. But this understanding fails to take seriously the importance of God's righteousness. And in this connection, the importance of God's wrath and tends to make, as Professor James Cone of Union Theological Seminary in New York says, tends to make God's love mere sentimentality. Think about it. Most of us fail to regard properly the significance of God's righteousness, God's wrath. This suggests that we tend to see God's love as completely self-giving without any demand for obedience. You see, most of us believe in cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it. And what's more, we think, behave, and interact as if grace were indeed cheap. For some reason, perhaps a selfish reason, with a logic all its own, we seem to think and act as if God is basically not against anybody or anything. And we all know according to the reasons of the heart, don't we, that that is not the case. How then do we reconcile God's righteousness, yea, God's wrath, with God's love? In a word, and at the risk of sounding a bit like Marcion, but don't get ahead of me, we don't. Play any mental games you want, play any word games you want, it is really beyond our ability to fathom it at least with the powers of the mind. Humble yourselves enough to admit it. But given the powers of the heart, we can at least, on the basis of faith in the reality of God, and mind you, I did not say belief in the idea of the reality of God. I said belief in the reality of God. On that basis, we can come to a point of view which reveals to us and reveals to us not as the eclipse of a once illuminated scene. That's one of my favorite phrases as the theologian H. Richard Niebuhr once so succinctly expressed, but which makes transparent to us for all time that God's love and God's righteousness are two ways of talking about the same reality. God's righteousness is, whatever else it might be, 
at least God's constant activity at helping each of us to become aware, making each of us to realize, requiring each of us to see, demanding each of our hearts to accept that not all we do is right. While God's love, whatever else it might be, is at least God's self-giving to this task in the interest of all of us. It was as the embodiment of love and righteousness that God and Jesus Christ moved through the temple in Jerusalem one particular day some 2,000 odd years ago. As we consider the account of this event as it is found not only in the book of Matthew but also in the books of Mark, Luke, and John, there is some question about the precise day whether it was at the outset of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem as suggested in Matthew, Luke, and John, or on a subsequent day as suggested in Mark is not important, at least not right now. What is important is that the scripture makes plain to us that Jesus' temperament on this occasion was one of righteous anger. For as we are told, he went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold animals. Why? This is a question well worth considering. When I first pondered this question during the early days of my youth, I concluded that Jesus acted so forcefully and so forthrightly because he was merely offended by the actions of the money changers, the actions of those that sold doves, and by the negligence of the high priest in charge of the temple, well, I'm not sure that this constituted, well, I am sure that this constituted much of the reason for Jesus' reaction upon entering the temple. But now I can see that his protest, his wrath was directed at a problem much deeper than their action. For when I consider what they were doing, I am inclined to sense and feel that Jesus was most likely not that upset, don't get ahead of me here, not that upset with the form of their actions. As a result of looking closely at the text, we learn, for example, 
that the money changers and those who sold animals were providing a needed service. In a modern day society such as ours where we have grown so accustomed to 7-Eleven stores and the like, we can well identify with the kind of business these men operated for theirs was an operation of convenience. Each day, people from outlying areas, Jews and Gentiles alike, would arrive in Jerusalem to worship at the temple, the sacred and ritualistic center of Judaism. Once in the city, they had need of exchanging their coins for the standard Hebrew or Tyrian money, currency, which was required. In addition, they also had need of animals to sacrifice at the temple, animals which had been ritually cleaned, making it too impractical to bring them long distances to Jerusalem. So the money changers and those who sold sacrificial animals provided a needed service. And I'm inclined that this did not in and of itself offend Jesus. And curiously enough, I know it may sound odd. Although I am sure Jesus was disturbed by their actions, I really do not think that he was ultimately, ultimately bothered by the extortion and the graft that took place in the temple or the misguided intentions of those who, according to the Markan account, Use the temple as a thoroughfare, a shortcut from one street to another, or ultimately bothered by the sanction, tacit or otherwise, which the high priest must have given these fraudulent and irreverent practices in order for them to have taken place. Rather, my heart tells me that Jesus was most disturbed by the root of these actions, the root of this behavior. My heart tells me that he was most bothered by the fact that they acted and carried on as if there was no wrongdoing as if what they were doing was in some way permissible in the eyes of God. He was offended by the fact that they did not see that not all we do is right. The chief priest, for example, the leaders of the faith, the custodians of God's temple had become blind to the errors of their ways. So much so that they did not even recognize the Son of God when he appeared before them. Rather than join the chorus of children who, as we see in verses peculiar to the Matthew text, children who proclaim Jesus the Messiah at the sight of seeing him heal and do wonderful things in the temple, the chief priest became sore displeased. Can you imagine it? 
the leaders of the faith, the custodians of God's temple. They did not see that not all we do is right. For this reason, Jesus saw the need to react with righteous anger, with the wrath of God, so that eyes might be opened. Perhaps he did not move through the temple with a whip in hand as the Gospel of John portrays him. But by overturning tables and knocking over seats, Jesus acted with righteous anger so that hearts might be opened. Even during the time of his earthly ministry, to the fact that not all we do is right. When I consider the nature of our age, an age of test tube babies and test tube faith, an age in which the individual is the measure, an age in which whatever is willed and whatever feels good is right, I wonder if we do not need to be reminded that God is real and that there is a dimension of his reality which can so forcefully and so forth rightly overturn the ways of each of us so that all of us can see enough for our hearts to make plain to us that in this age of everything goes, all that goes does not go well with God. God is a loving God, but God is also a righteous God, and he will not be compromised. I have only to remind you of the God who mothered heaven and earth, was the same God who ordered the flood. I have only to remind you, and I don't have to get too specific about contemporary issues, I only have to remind you that the God of Abraham and the God of Moses who freed the Israelites from Egyptian bondage was the same God who kept them in the wilderness for 40 years. I don't have to remind you that the God who was so self-giving that he sent his only begotten son so that we might have everlasting life was the same God who overturned the tables in the temple who knocked over the seats in the temple, who ran the money changers out of the temple, 
who chastised the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. It's the same God. The same God. I have a particular heaviness about my heart today. So many things as of late have seemed to burden me. I can hardly count the number of couples who have been friends to me and my wife over the last four or five years. I can hardly count a one that's still together. With the latest coming not too long ago, something's wrong. Not everything is right. Not all that we do is right. Something is wrong somewhere and we got to face it. I can think of parents I've met recently who say that they're searching for inner peace now and they don't have time to raise their children. It's each man and woman for himself. Something's wrong. Not everything that we do is right. I think about the Baki decision. I wonder about that. Not all that we do is right. For the same God who loves us. It's the same God who at times gets righteously angry with us and has to straighten us up. That great God. Be reminded. May heaven smile upon you. And may God bless you. Amen.